welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to the podcast. And this week we are providing the audio taken from our recent psychiatric drug withdrawal town hall held in March 2021. But before we get there, I wanted to let you know that we have recently released a second podcast, which is called Madden America Science News. In our new podcast, Peter Simons, Madden America's science news writer and editor, provides a weekly summary of newly published research findings related to psychiatry, psychology and mental health. You can find the new podcast on Apple, Spotify and Google by searching for Madden America Science News. So please do go and subscribe. I also wanted to mention that our next psychiatric drug withdrawal town hall will be held on May the 14th, 2021. For our third discussion, we're examining protracted problems that can arise after psychiatric drug withdrawal, sometimes referred to as post-acute or post-withdrawal syndromes. These experiences can include chronic health problems and sexual dysfunction. What do we know and not know about responding to long-term health problems after coming off psychiatric drugs. So please join us on Friday, May the 14th, 2021 at 9am Pacific Time, 12 noon US Eastern Time, 5pm BST and 6pm in Europe for a panel discussion that will include questions and comments from the audience. To register, you can visit maddenamerica.com where you'll find a registration link on the homepage or you can visit eventbrite.com and search for psychiatric drug withdrawal. So now on to our podcast and the following audio was recorded at our second psychiatric drug withdrawal town hall. The discussion was aired live on March the 12th, 2021, and the panellists are Dr. Giovanni Fava, Dr. Peter Groot, Dr. Mark Horowitz, and Professor Joanna Moncrief. For this discussion, we asked what science and research can tell us about the experience of withdrawal, and we discussed research effort that has called into question long-held professional beliefs about the effects of psychotropic drugs on the brain and nervous system. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for this, our second discussion in our series dedicated to psychiatric drug withdrawal. And um, on behalf of our partners, a disorder for everyone, the Council for Evidence-Based Psychiatry and the International Institute for Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal, uh, we're so grateful to see so many of you join us today. And thank you to all of you who made a donation to be with us today. It's really appreciated and it really helps us to stage these events and put more of them on. So thank you. My name is James. I'm the um, host of the Madden America podcast. And um, before we get underway with an introduction to the panel. I just want to mention a couple of people behind the scenes who keep things running for us. So firstly, we have Shira Collings and Shira Collings works for Madden America Continuing Education and she's managing the call for us today. Thank you, Shira. And we also have Lucy Fernandez who will be looking after the chat and the questions. And Lucy is the administrator for the International Institute for Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal. Uh, so we have a, an hour and a half today, uh, first hour is devoted to the panel and then half an hour for viewer questions at the end. And just to say the discussion is being recorded today, so if you don't get to see all of it, we will be putting it on our YouTube channel afterwards and sharing a link to it. So 
please feel free to ask questions and we'll be selecting some of them for later. We won't be able to address them all in the time that we have, but if there are questions asked that we can't get to, then we'll try and build them into future sessions. So to ask a question, please use the Q&A button at the bottom of the Zoom window. This is just because questions placed in the chat might be lost and might not be easy to see. And bear in mind, anything you write in the chat or the QA is visible to everyone. Um, I do also just want to mention that the panel won't be able to respond to individual circumstances surrounding withdrawal. And I know this is disappointing sometimes to hear, but addressing those in this kind of format would be very hard because of all the complexities and intricacies. Um, and before we go any further, it's very important to say that if you are someone considering coming off your psychiatric drugs, please, please never stop your drugs suddenly. If at all possible, please seek advice and support from a knowledgeable professional. Uh, so the panel today and, and for future discussions are not providing medical advice or making specific recommendations regarding withdrawal. Our aim really here is to explore and discuss. Um, for those of you watching that might be new to these issues, we do have a page on Mad in America with some resources and, and links. And you can find this by visiting the website madinamerica.com forward slash PDW. And we'll put that link in the chat so you, you can find it. Um, so I hope that's all okay. Uh, as I say, we're delighted to have you with us. And so I'm onto the panel now. I'm really pleased to say that we have with us some of the world's premier researchers in this particular field. And so without any further ado, I'd like to ask the panel members if you could introduce yourselves and say a little bit about how you became involved in withdrawal-related research. So, uh, Joanna, could we start with you? Yes, hello, James. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you, everyone, for coming. It's fantastic to see people from all over the world. It's a great... Uh, um, a boon of our current um, circumstances. Um, so I am a psychiatrist and I've always been interested in psychiatric drugs and what they do to people and trying to understand um, try, trying to understand them from a different perspective and, and interrogate the way in which they are generally uh, presented in the psychiatric field. So that's really what led me into withdrawal. Obviously, when you're trying to understand everything that a drug does, you become curious about what happens when someone's taking the drug for a long period and when they stop it and, and what goes on after that. So that's uh, my background. I, I'm uh, now, after many years, a professor at University College London, as well as um, still practicing as a psychiatrist in the NHS in London. Perfect. Thank you so much, Jana. Peter, could we come on to you next? Yes, you can. I've got a short introduction. My name is Peter Groot, and my educational background is that I studied chemistry, and this was followed by years of molecular genetic research in different institutions, both in the Netherlands and the US. And I obtained a PhD in 1989, and in 2012, as part of a part-time study, I also got a bachelor in psychology. Now, my interest in psychiatric drug withdrawal stems from the fact that in 2004, I started using antidepressants myself. And I decided to do this at that time because I was very depressed and I saw no other options. Now, in an attempt to find out if antidepressants worked for me, 
for a long period of time, I measured my own mood and I wrote about this. And one of the things I discovered during this period was that I experienced withdrawal every time I forgot to take my daily dose of Venlafaxine. And this started me to realize just how big and overlooked withdrawal problems uh, were and still are. And in a strange and very unpredictable and surprising way, this realization uh, has led to the development of so-called tapering strips. We will hear uh, more about this, uh, I guess, uh, later. And I have described how this happened in a recent preview, so I will not uh, elaborate on this here now. Now, my first goal, and I think the goal, and the goal of the people I work with, but I think also the goal of many service users all over the world, was to find practical solutions for tapering and dose optimization. Solutions that will truly help doctors and patients. Solutions which, in my opinion, should be based on shared decision-making and on proper monitoring and self-monitoring. And my second goal was, and still is, to uh, do withdrawal research, obviously using tapering strips, uh, which is also the subject of tonight's town hall. And my hope is that this research will help to further improve the current practice of tapering. And I think for the rest, uh, I will just answer questions when they uh, come around. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. That's great. And Mark, could we uh, go on to you next? Sure. Uh, so I'm Mark Horowitz. Uh, I'm a training psychiatrist, and, and thank you very much for inviting me. It's great to be on this panel with uh, everyone else. Um, I, uh, I did a PhD in psychiatry. I was a fairly uh, conventional psychiatrist, I would say. I did a PhD in the neurobiology of depression and the way that antidepressants affect the brain by looking at brain cells in a dish. Um, I had uh, no intention of uh, going into withdrawal research uh, until I had a uh, very short, sharp, painful introduction to the topic of withdrawal by uh, trying to come off uh, escitalopram after being on it for many years, an antidepressant. Um, and I quickly uh, worked out, uh, by reading Giovanni's work, that what had happened to me wasn't rare uh, and I wasn't isolated. Uh, and also that the, the academics and psychiatrists that I'd studied under uh, had very little to say that was useful about how to come off these drugs. And in fact, many of them uh, tried to minimise the scale of the problem. Um, and I ended up going on uh, peer support websites to get advice on how to come off the drugs safely. And I learned a lot from people like Adele Framer, who, ran, uh, who runs Surviving Antidepressants. And since then, I've spent my time trying to um, write articles and explain to doctors and other people uh, what is uh, the safest way we think to come off psychiatric drugs, uh, from including antidepressants and antipsychotics and other, other drugs. Um, and uh, I, I, I also have the, uh, 
privilege of working on the, the radar trial with, with Joanna, uh, in which we're taking people off antipsychotics uh, slowly. Um, and, and we're also looking at ways of implementing uh, safe tapering into the public health system in, 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 in England and the NHS. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark. And uh, Giovanni, welcome. Uh, if, if you could tell us a little bit about you too, that would be great. Yes, thank you. I'm a psychiatrist and uh, I'm a researcher, but uh, unlike uh, most of my colleagues, uh, I actually evaluate uh, and personally treat uh, a lot of patients. Uh, I, uh, I have joint appointments at uh, the University of Bologna in Italy at the University at Buffalo in New York. And uh, uh, early 90s, I started uh, uh, seeing patients uh, clinically with uh, uh, problems uh, related to antidepressant drugs, uh, particularly withdrawal reaction, which were not really recognized uh, in the literature. Uh, in addition to being a clinician and uh, a, a researcher, I'm also the editor of a journal uh, psychotherapy and psychosomatics uh, uh, that uh, uh, allowed me to uh, write an editorial back in '94, uh, raising questions about uh, uh, antidepressant, which was actually the beginning of uh, of some questioning. Bob Whitaker uh, took the editorial and became a chapter of his book, Anatomy of an Epidemic. And since then, so it's been a long. <laughs> Uh, a long time, uh, been doing research uh, and uh, reviews on 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 these topics, uh, and also trying to uh, point uh, to issues uh, in uh, in our journals that other journals uh, were not uh, allowed to be published. Thank you. Um, we're you know thrilled to have uh, all, all of you with us, and and. For the next part, really, it would be nice if we could perhaps delve into a little bit more detail about your individual areas of research and speciality. And, you know, I hope that that will kind of give people a sense of, you know, where, where we're making progress in this particular area. So, um, you know, it would be good to, you know, maybe if it's OK, Mark, to start off with you to talk a little bit about your work with uh, hyperbolic tapering and and serotonin occupancy if that's okay sure so i thought i'd talk for five minutes about the basics of of, of drugs and tapering but i'm sure other people will, will take forward um so i think uh psychiatric drugs have effects on the brain and the brain responds to that by adapting to try to minimize those effects that's what the brain and body do to stimuli when it's too hot the body tries to cool us down. When it's too cold out, it tries to warm us up. And so um, uh, over time, uh, the, the brain changes in response to taking psychiatric drugs uh, involving up or down regulation of receptors and other changes we don't quite understand yet. Um, and so your brain gets used to a certain amount of stimulation from the drugs. Um, when you stop the drugs, the difference between what the brain expects and what it's receiving is experienced as withdrawal symptoms. And we know that from uh, drugs like nicotine or caffeine or, or certain recreational drugs. 
And it seems to be the same for psychiatric drugs. So that means for antidepressants, for benzodiazepines, Z drugs, gabapentinoids, mood stabilizers, and antipsychotics. Um, and so what we know is the worst possible way to stop a psychiatric drug is to stop it suddenly in one day. Um, your, your, your brain is used to a certain level of stimulation. Uh, the drug completely goes out of your system, and that difference is experienced as withdrawal symptoms. Something like jumping off the top of a 10-storey building down to the ground floor, and it can cause extremely severe withdrawal uh, effects in some people. So the opposite of jumping off the, the, the 10-storey building is coming down step by step through every floor. And that's what tapering is. Tapering is making small reductions um, spread out over time so that each reduction is uh, tolerable, you know, either mildly unpleasant uh, but, but, not, but not intolerable or, or for some people not, 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 not unpleasant at all. Um, and what that does, we think, is it gives time for the brain to get used to less effect of the drug. So rather than dropping down like that, you go down a little bit, the brain has some time to adapt to the new level and you keep doing that and you can go all the way down to zero in that manner. Um, and so what, what people would normally do in practice is say reduce someone's dose by 5 or 10 or 20%. It varies as to what people can, can tolerate. And then observe someone for withdrawal symptoms, which might happen uh, a few days after a reduction, might increase in intensity, reach a peak, improve and go back down to near normal. Um, and uh, that might take someone two or four weeks, depending on how big the reduction is. And based on how someone deals with that reduction, you can keep on making reductions and go down all the way from your, your starting dose to the bottom. Um, it will vary greatly as to how long that process needs to take for people. So for some people who are on the drug only for a short number of weeks or months, it might be possible to come off a drug in a few weeks. But if people are on a drug for years, then it might take people months or even years to come off a drug in a way that's tolerable and doesn't cause too many withdrawal symptoms. Um, and then uh, the last thing to think about is how to make those steps down from the 10th floor building equal in size. And so you might think that to make an equal size reduction um, in effect on the brain, you, you would uh, need to make equal size reductions in dose. So I'm just going to share my screen briefly for one slide. Um, but So this is an example um, of an antidepressant and its effect on the brain. Uh, and what you can see is that dose of an antidepressant doesn't uh, linearly increase effect on the brain. It actually goes up very steeply in terms of its effect on the brain, and then it levels out. And that's actually true for all psychiatric drugs. And what that means is if you reduce your dose in a linear way, 20 milligrams to 15 to 10 to 5 to 0, each of those steps produces an increasingly big effect on the brain. So you can see this final reduction is actually a huge decrease in effect on the brain. And so while the, while the first reduction might be reasonably tolerable because it doesn't cause that big a change to the brain, the last reduction can be very difficult to make and cause severe withdrawal effects. 
And so um, what this uh, also helps you to predict is if you want to make even size reductions in effect on the brain, you've got to make uh, smaller and smaller size reductions of dose. So you can see each of these size reductions in dose produces the same effect in reduction uh, in terms of effects on the brain. And what that means is the final dose before completely stopping will have to be extremely small. So in this case, for example, less than one milligram of an antidepressant, and that's true for lots of different drugs. And this pattern of tapering uh, can be described as hyperbolic, which is just a, a fancy way of saying getting smaller and smaller as you get down to total lower doses. And so those are, those are sort of the things that I focused on in some of my papers. Great. Thank you, Mark. And that's, that's very helpful because I think it kind of explains to people why they might struggle in the very final stages of their withdrawal. It's a common question, isn't it? Why does it get so tough at the end? And I think your work really nicely brings out why it gets so hard at the end for people. Okay. And Peter, I wondered if we could turn to you and, and talk a little bit about your development of tapering strips, which, you know, kind of quite neatly tie in with Mark's explanation there of, you know, how we need to adopt a, a slow and steady approach to helping people to come off. So if you could talk a little bit about your tapering strips work, that would be marvellous. Well, I gladly do this. Uh, well, to begin with, uh, what Mark is describing, if you think about it, this is what so many patients over so many years have been trying to do themselves at home, desperately uh, fiddling around with their own medication to make smaller. So they clearly realized this, this was necessary. Uh, and I think the, the realization that the steps near the end had to be small was also there. And what Mark was doing when his paper appeared, I was extremely glad because what he described was what we had been trying to make possible starting in 2013. And the idea we had was very, very simple. It was the same idea all these patients were having, and it was actually based on the idea of somebody, who, uh, a Dutch person who uh, wrote it down in 2004. And that was to make a strip with tablets of uh, ever smaller dosage. Now, we tried to make this, but we realized this was practically a very difficult way of doing it because you need so many different dosages which is prohibitively expensive. So instead of making many different dosages, we only make a few different dosages, just like uh, the system you use when you are paying with money. We have coins of one cent, of five cent, ten cent, of twenty cents, and we don't have uh, coins with seventeen cents or thirteen cents because we don't need them. And the thing we did, and it's basically very simple, is make a strip. This is what we call this tapering strip. And as you can see, I hope you can see this, the number of tablets in this strip differs from day to day as does the size of the, strip, uh, the, size of the tablets. But the amount, the total amount, the total dose for a single day can be reduced very, very gradually. And in fact, by doing that, we can do what uh, Mark is proposing with his hyperbolic tapering. So you can go 
faster in the beginning and slower in the end. And one of the things, and I want to stress this, that we have come to realize more and more in contact with the patient is the extreme variability between different patients. So if I, and I answer questions on the website in uh, the Netherlands, PsychosisNet, if I answer questions, I also always try to explain it's basically not very useful to try to uh, set a certain date for this much time I will take to paper uh, my medication because it's basically impossible to predict this. Some people can stop cold turkey even with phenylalanine without seeming to have much problems, but there are very few people who can do this. Some people will find out that they need much more time. Now, if you can do this with a system in which you can easily have the medication uh, prescribed to you and you monitor yourself during the tapering, you can experience that you are starting to get some complaints. And this can be a reason to slow down or to increase the dose a little bit, and then together with your prescriber, you can try to get to the end of your paper by being able to adapt during the tapering. And in fact, I think that's what all these websites we have, like Metin America, the Withdrawal Project, and also Heather Aston have been telling all along, you have to see how it goes, adapt, and try to get to the end. And that's, I think, the only way. And I don't think it will be possible to predict, like, this is the right scheme for this medication. And I think, in fact, this is what we see happening in the Netherlands from the results we get back from patients who have used the tapering strips to tape. So I hope this explains or answers your questions for now. Thank you, Peter. That, that was helpful. And... Um Obviously, we'll come on to to kind of you know delve into some questions on on these issues. Um, uh, turning to you, Joanna, I wondered if it's okay if we could talk a little bit about the drug centered model and and your work on that, and particularly you know how it might help change the conversations that we have around uh, people struggling with withdrawal problems. Yeah, thank you, James. I feel um, I feel this message to this sort of audience is is maybe not necessary, but but I do think. I do think what understanding what the drugs are doing in the first place is an important um, an important thing for people to be informed about. More and more research is coming out, which makes it clear that you know the, the population, including doctors and GPS, have become convinced that psychiatric drugs work because they rectify an underlying chemical imbalance and that makes people understandably really, really nervous about the idea of stopping their medication. And I really think it, it makes, it puts people into a fragile and vulnerable state of mind, people who are probably feeling fragile and vulnerable to begin with, um, and stops people from potentially moving on with their life and, and trying to get off medication and also prevents people maybe people themselves or doctors from recognising withdrawal symptoms as what they are. It, it makes people more likely, I think, to interpret um, withdrawal symptoms as relapse. So, yeah, so, so my work has really been 
uh, trying to explode this myth that drugs are rectifying a chemical imbalance. Even if even if mental health problems are caused by mental by by chemical imbalances or other biological abnormalities, and that's not been shown for any sort of mental health problem, but even if they are, we have no evidence that drugs work by correcting those underlying abnormalities or chemical imbalances, and that's because. Placebo-controlled trials don't discriminate, don't, don't tell you that the drug is working in one way rather than another way. And, and because there is another very plausible explanation for how drugs are working. So in my work, I've called that idea that drugs are rectifying an underlying abnormality, the disease-centered model of drug action. My first paper was published in Giovanni, my first paper at Pub on this was published in Giovanni's journal. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, and um, and uh, and I contrasted that that idea that uh, that assumption that has you know underlied all use of drugs in psychiatry or most use of drugs in psychiatry with the alternative way of understanding psychiatric drugs, which I've called the drug-centered model. And this basically says, well, these drugs are active drugs, active agents that change the normal state of the body and the brain. They're all drugs that cross the blood-brain barrier and they change the brain in one way or another. So, of course, they're going to interact with um, any symptoms or problems that people have that, that are manifested in um, emotional uh, emotional difficulties or difficulties with thinking or um, uh, or, um, or, or behavior, you know, sort of controlling behavior. Um, just as we recognize, for example, we, we have a phrase called drowning your sorrows. We recognize that if you are depressed and you have a drink of alcohol, that may well um, abolish the depression for a short time. The, the alterations that are induced by taking alcohol are superimposed on your underlying emotional state um, unchanged by it. That doesn't mean that anything is happening to the, uh, to, to the underlying biology of that problem, if, if that is the right way to think of the problem, which I would argue it's not. Um, so, so this, this drug-centered model really highlights that drugs that are prescribed for psychiatric problems are, um, are psychoactive drugs, and there's no hard and fast distinction between psychiatric drugs and recreational drugs that have psychoactive effects, apart from the fact that many psychiatric drugs cause effects that are not generally experienced as being very pleasant, whereas by definition, Drugs that are used recreationally induce effects that at least some people find to be pleasant. And then I, I think if you understand that there's no hard and fast distinction there, you start to realize that psychiatric drugs are likely to have all the same sort of problems, therefore, that recreational drugs have. And we recognize with recreational drugs that there is this problem of tolerance, that the longer you take them, the less they have the, 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 the acute effects that they cause, and the more likely you are to have problems when you stop them, to have withdrawal problems because of the modifications that the drug has induced in the body and the brain. Um, there are differences between different sorts of drugs. 
uh, as well as differences between the way that individuals react to them. And just another thing, another thing to say is we 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 really know very little about the sorts of changes that these drugs make in um, cause to the brain and to the body, and we know very little about what goes on when you stop when people stop using them. Um, there's been a little bit of, of research on opiate withdrawal, the sort of physiology and neurology of opiate withdrawal, but very little on withdrawal from other substances. We we do know, however, that sometimes long-term use of drugs can modify in the, bre- the, the, the brain or the body in ways that seem to be um, quite long-lasting. So we know, for example, we've known for decades that if you take antipsychotics for any sustained length of time, there is a risk of um, developing tardive dyskinesia, this neurological abnormality, which can um, last even when the drugs are stopped, sometimes for many months and years. So we know that drugs have the potential to cause lasting changes. We don't uh, we, we don't know whether those changes disappear in the end, get back to normal or not. And it seems that maybe in some cases it at least takes a long time for those changes to get back to normal. Um, so I think that's probably probably really what I wanted to say. Just uh, again to to stress that I think it's really important that we do publicise the fact that these drugs are not working by rectifying, reversing um, some underlying chemical imbalance or other abnormality because I think this makes people so frightened about the possibility of of coming off them and and it makes people underestimate their own resources and their own um, uh, abilities to address problems. Thank you, Joanna. That's really important, isn't it? And I can't help thinking that if we did adopt a drug-centred model in conversations with our prescribers about the difficulties of coming off, it would be a very different experience, wouldn't it? Because it wouldn't they wouldn't automatically leap to you are relapsing. They would instead yeah. think this is a drug effect and we need to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And last but by no means least, uh, Giovanni, um, I wondered if we could talk a little bit about your. Um, it'd be you, you have a proposed theoretical model um, on the mechanism that might explain why withdrawal effects occur. So I wonder if you could uh, talk to us a little about about that. Uh, I'll try. Um, uh, you see, in my clinical work, uh, I observe uh, a number of uh, manifestations related to antidepressant drugs not only the withdrawal reactions, and I was looking for a model to explain and to put together these manifestations. And uh, I found it uh, in this, uh, uh, <clears throat> what is called uh, the oppositional uh, model of tolerance. What is about it? Uh, Mark described uh, very well, very clearly the fact uh, that uh, the action of uh, antidepressants as well as other psychotropic drugs uh, require uh, adjustment, balances. For instance, uh, uh, everybody knows that uh, antidepressants uh, take uh, at least uh, three or four weeks uh, <coughs> to uh, uh, manifest their effects. Uh, there is uh, this phase. And wh- why does it take uh, 
that time because there are some adjustments in the receptors that have to be made. Uh, uh, curiously, in psychopharmacology, you accept that things are different uh, uh, between uh, uh, four days or four weeks, but you assume that uh, four weeks or four years of treatment are the same. I mean, nothing changes. So uh, <clears throat> the model, what, what does the model um, postulates? Uh, uh, and uh, uh, let me, first of all, clarify that it's a tentative explanation that we uh, very much need the research and uh, test and confirmation. So when you have uh, a treatment that, that extends over several months or mm, even more years, uh, mm, these medications uh, may stimulate uh, uh, processes that uh, uh, run counter uh, the initial acute effect of a drug. So there are sort of opposition. Um, for instance, uh, you may have uh, uh, someone who's taking antidepressant drugs for several months, uh, uh, doing okay. And then what happens is that the drug st stops uh, making its effect. Um, uh, <clears throat> or you may have uh, uh, the situation when the drug seems to be working too much uh, and, then, and then you get into behavioral activation, or you get into the uh, opposite paradoxical reactions, uh, uh, more depression or emotional numbing. Okay, so what happens uh, in the maintenance treatment uh, gets uh, uh, augmented, amplified, if you decrease or discontinue the drug, the antidepressant drug, because these processes no longer have any uh, oppositions. They, 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 they become quite uh, uh, free. <clears throat> so uh, uh, that may be uh, the case of withdrawal reactions uh, and may also be the case of withdrawal reactions that do not stop. Uh, one of, uh, and, uh, and we share with uh, the speakers, with Mark, Joanna, and Peter, uh, a long fight. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's not that uh, for all people, after two weeks, everything is over. <laughs> we wish, we wish it was the way. So uh, they may continue for uh, a long time. There may be other phenomena, such as resistance uh, to further treatment. And so uh, we have, uh, we need to have this model to say that uh, withdrawal reactions are part of uh, uh, a number of uh, clinical uh, manifestations that uh, uh, antidepressant drugs, like any other uh, medication, may uh, involve. I think that uh, uh, this is pretty much uh, uh, the basic idea. So the withdrawal reaction is the tip of the iceberg. 
uh, of, of a state of uh, behavioral uh, toxicity. Uh, these are the terms that we use uh, and it's not, it's not very easy uh, to use these terms. Nonetheless, uh, antidepressant drugs uh, are very important and life-saving uh, medication. Uh, this is simply a problem that you may encounter. And what makes things puzzling is that not in every patient, uh, uh, but uh, uh, in a part of patients, and uh, we still need a lot of research, as I said, to uh, uh, understand uh, better uh, the phenomena. Thank you. Thank you, Giovanni. And thank you all for, for going into that. So, you know, just to kind of summarize, really, Giovanni talked to us about oppositional tolerance and the fact that the brain tries to oppose changes that are brought in by taking psychiatric drugs on a regular basis. Mark told us about why it's so important then to deal with those changes in a very gradual, incremental way downwards. So you're not shocking your brain and nervous system by making sudden changes that are then unopposed. And Peter talked to us a little bit about a, a practical method of making that slow and safe reduction by using tapering strips. And Journey very kindly explained that, you know, our whole language and discussion and debate about this particular area is not particularly sophisticated. You know, we're still very much focused on chemical imbalances and brain diseases and all the rest of it. Um, that was very helpful. Thank you. So I'd like to open it up to all of the panel now to, you know, to kind of pose some questions to you. And I guess the first one is, you know, it's it's fantastic hearing about how much work has been done and, and how far we've come, but clearly there's a lot more still to do. So what are your thoughts about what are the most important areas of psychiatric drug withdrawal to focus our research on in the in the, the, the short to medium term? Well, if I may, then uh, given what Giovanni said, I think it's important to realize that there is a distinction uh, between having withdrawal symptoms during tapering and having these withdrawal symptoms or whatever you may call them, which occur after that. So uh, there's, there's a confusion in the literature that say a, a slower tapering doesn't prevent withdrawal. I think it can prevent withdrawal during tapering, but we still don't know uh, in how far it can prevent uh, withdrawal symptoms or whatever you call it, post-acute withdrawal or whichever name you gave, give it which occur weeks or even months later. I myself did an experiment, and it was actually published in uh, Psychotherapy and Psychosomatics, in which I tapered uh, venlafaxine I used. And this, this was before the advent uh, of tapering trips, but I knew I had to do it gradually. And during the tapering, everything went fine. It was only a few weeks after I stopped, I started having complaints again, uh, I think three months later or four months later, I decided to uh, start using antidepressants again, which I've been doing ever since because my complaints went away very quickly. Looking back, I think this points very much to uh, things like withdrawal much more than the return of depression. But it leaves me with the question, what do I have to do to be able to stop using these antidepressants. 
do I have to pay for much more gradual than I did then? Or would I have to wait uh, many months in sort of anguish, hoping that my complaints will go away in the, in the near future sometime? And I think this is one of the crucial uh, questions uh, that we are facing for me. Thank you. Others' thoughts? What do we need to focus on? So, uh, what I think we, we need to do um, is uh, apply the sort of ideas that, have, that were started online about how to come off antidepressants, reducing by a small amount, seeing what happens to people based on that, making further reductions, with the, with the idea that for some people who aren't for years, slowly means months or years rather than weeks, and see how many people can come off their drugs like that, and what the, what the range is for people, what the, what the determinants of that are. Is it about how long you're on the drug? Is it about the type of drug you're on? Clearly, some are worse than others. Is it about the way that your liver metabolises that drug that causes it to affect your brain more? Is it some other genetic aspect? But I think a lot of the discussion in the published literature and in doctors' minds about tapering off antidepressants or other psychiatric drugs, they have in their mind that it takes days or weeks. And so they often conclude that people can't come off because they get into trouble when they taper over that period of time. Whereas if, if we change that time scale to months or years for some people, that might allow more people to come off um, and for people to confuse withdrawal and relapse less, um, because I think that's one of the big issues. It's, it can be very confusing for people um, because withdrawal can involve anxiety and depression. Um, it seems to be able to involve psychotic symptoms when people come up antipsychotics. So the symptoms of withdrawal can look a lot like the symptoms of the underlying condition, which can make it very confusing for patients and can make it very confusing for doctors. Um, and certainly compounded by uh, doctors being told that relapse is very likely and withdrawal is not. Um, whereas I think if we do it slowly and monitor symptoms, we can see the difference between withdrawal and relapse by seeing that withdrawal comes, gets worse, goes, uh, gets better and goes away. And seeing that pattern again and again can be reassuring to the individual. And it can also uh, let doctors know that what they're doing uh, you know, is, is about managing withdrawals, which means tapering more slowly rather than uh, seeing relapse come back. So I think that's what we need to start doing is tapering people off their drugs slowly and, and seeing how different people respond to that process. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I assume there part and parcel of that also is encouraging more information up front when these things are first prescribed that people might have a considerable tapering journey in front of them because I was never warned of that. Many people aren't. People end up staying on the drugs for two years, five years, 10 years. And of course, then they have the shock of finding out when it happens to them. So, you know, I guess there's a, a big bit of work to do in terms of how do you give informed consent when we actually know really so little about what these drugs are doing in the brain and nervous system. Well. We've done two studies uh, asking people who have used the tapering strips how it went. And by the way, we have to do these studies. We can only ask them. We have no control over what happens in uh, their daily clinical practice. And many of them have 
five to pay for medications before. And of those people, 70% were able to come off their medication. That was the first study, which tells me that if you allow patients to choose, because I think that's very much what happens in those circumstances, then it helps enormously without fixing on, uh, fixating on some kind of time uh, people need. In the second study, we wanted to answer a different question. What happens to people once they have been able to come off their drug safely? And again, we came up with a percentage of something like 68%, uh, I believe, of the people who had uh, come off the medication and they were still off the medication one year at least, up to five years, we could not measure any longer. So they did not start to use the medication again. And although it's difficult to know for certain, one of the things we saw that the people who had uh, noted that they had had worse withdrawal symptoms during previous tapering attempts, they seemed to be a little bit more successful of staying off the medication. And although it's uh, just sort of speculation, it was our feeling that they perhaps were more motivated to, uh, to withstand the negative symptoms they were uh, experiencing because there was one thing they clearly did not want, and that was going back on medication. And that brings in another component in this whole equation, and that are the social circumstances where people are in the kind of support they have, the motivation they have. And that's definitely a factor we should also incorporate in our thinking about uh, dealing with withdrawal issues. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Uh, Giovanni, Joanna, any, any thoughts on where we should be uh, investing our time and what little research money there is in this field? Well, just to say, <clears throat> I think... I think publicising the existence of withdrawal effects like this meeting and others is so important. I mean, that's the first step. And I think it has really changed the uh, discussion, certainly in the United Kingdom over the last few years. And it's so important to, you know, point out to doctors what might be happening when people reduce medication or stop medication. Um, but also in highlighting what we were saying that, you know, these are potentially dangerous drugs that we don't understand very much about. And what we don't understand is what they're doing to your brain. Uh, and, you know, if we can get that conversation started, then hopefully fewer people will start on the drugs in the first place. And doctors will, you know, be more willing to, it will, will recognise the difficulties that people have when they're coming off and recognise them for what they are. If I may add something, um... I think we uh, there are important steps uh, that have been made, but uh, there are further steps uh, that need to be done. Uh, I think a very important step uh, was the recognition of uh, withdrawal uh, syndromes and reactions from uh, antidepressant drugs. Uh, and uh, this occurred very recently. I mean... <laughs> uh, Let's think that uh, in the, in the uh, UK, only in the current issue of the British Journal of Psychiatry, uh, there is an acknowledgement of withdrawal reactions. And of course, 
they may seem similar to relapses, but there is a way of uh, differentiating them. Withdrawal uh, reactions are generally new symptoms that the patient didn't have before. So uh, in, in the UK, in other European countries, uh, uh, the issue is getting recognition. In the United States, uh, uh, very little, uh, I must say. And uh, uh, a couple of years ago, John Reed, Mark, uh, and I had uh, some controversy in the American Journal of Psychiatry about the paper uh, that, uh, that was published. So I think it's, it is at least uh, an important step that uh, physicians start recognizing and acknowledging uh, withdrawal syndromes. But of course, we need many, many more data on the long-term outcome of uh, uh, these syndromes. Uh, we now have instruments uh, to measure, to evaluate. We need uh, uh, neurobiological studies uh, that uh, may uh, disclose uh, why a patient is having symptoms and another one is not having. There should be a reason. So, as I said before, we need this uh, to be really uh, a top priority. Uh, in health research. And the last type of research uh, we, we need are randomized controlled trials, which compare different methods of uh, tapering or discontinuing of addressing the symptoms. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, through this effort, and maybe the time is ripe now uh, and uh, it wasn't certainly, I, I can assure you, uh, ripe when I started in the 90s. <laughs> that was uh, uh, very, very tough. Uh, but the time is ripe for some sound research on, on, on these neglected topics. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. That was really helpful. And uh, I'm going to pose you all a completely unfair question with just a, a few minutes to go before we go to viewers' questions. But you all talked in, in various parts about the neurobiology of withdrawal and, you know, how little we understand. And, you know, it, it's at the crux of it, isn't it? It's it's the, the age-old question of why do some people experience withdrawal? Why do some people not? Why does it start after someone's tapered with some people, but during the taper for others? You know, how do we, how do we know whether the brain receptors will reset after they've been exposed for a period of time. So, you know, I just wanted, wanted your thoughts on what does the future look like in terms of how do we get to understand the detail of what is happening in a person's brain or nervous system when they take these drugs. So, you know, I, I know there's certain scanning and sampling you can do, and I know that there are certain models, but, you know, what does the future look like? Will we ever get to a point where we really can accurately model what the effect is on a person's brain and nervous system of taking these drugs over a period of time? So I think, number one, I think Joanna's point is the most important, that, that the first thing is... Um, acknowledging that these drugs, you know, have withdrawal effects and all sorts of other effects on the brain, we should be much more cautious in prescribing them. Um, you know, I think maybe it's, it's, it's sometimes lost on people that a lot of the reasons that these drugs are in guidelines is because they prevent relapse. Um, you know, uh, for example, for antidepressants, uh, the, drug, the studies go for six weeks and show very small effects compared to placebo. But the reason why they're in the guidelines 
for two years or more is because they're supposed to prevent relapse. But the studies that show that they prevent relapse involve people being taken off the drugs, often in a few days, sometimes in one day, and then measuring symptoms in the few months afterwards. None of those studies look at withdrawal symptoms. So it's almost certain that a lot of those relapses are actually withdrawal effects. And so a lot of these drugs don't have the relapse prevention properties that they're said to have. And that means that the guidelines are suggesting the use of drugs based on very poor evidence. So I think the first step is to acknowledge withdrawal from all these drugs means that the relapse prevention properties, a lot of these drugs are exaggerated and means that we shouldn't be prescribing them for long periods of time. Then to answer your actual question, um, you know, I'm, again, I'm, I'm, I think Peter Gruder said this also before, you don't need to understand all the details of this in order to get people off safely. I think we shouldn't, we certainly shouldn't wait around for brain scans before we try to work out how to get people off safely. I think the broad principles about doing it slowly do seem to apply to most people. Um, but if you did want to look at what the effects on the brain are, then, uh, you know, we have a wide array of uh, imaging techniques that are, you know, currently used mostly to understand uh, what people think are psychiatric illnesses, but could be deployed to look at the effect of uh, the drugs on the brain from imaging different receptors. You can image the serotonin receptor, you can image the serotonin transporter, you can image um, the benzodiazepine receptors, you can image dopamine receptors. So you can see a lot of different things in the brain and you can see how they're affected by long-term use. Uh, most effort hasn't been directed to look at those kinds of things, um, but it, but it could be done. It could be you could see what what is happening as people lower their dose, and you could start to understand why are some people affected more. You know, is it because they've got more sensitive receptors? Is it because um, they simply have more of the drug available in their bodies because they're not getting rid of it as quickly through their kidneys and liver? So there are lots of things that could give us clues about why some people are affected more than others. Mm. That's helpful. Thank you, Mark. And I, you know, I guess the, the, you know, the crux of this for so many people is, you know, how do we, how do we best understand whether, given this oppositional tolerance mechanism, how do we best understand how to, people's brain receptors can reset after exposure, and and how do we help that to happen in the quickest, best, most easy way for people, you know, to try and avoid some of the protract, protracted and on ongoing problems that some people experience. I would very much like to ask a question to Joe Farney, because I'm less a proponent of uh, RCTs, although I know they are very important instruments. But my, my, my problem with RCTs in, uh, in withdrawal research is that it easily boils down to comparing two different tapering schedules with each other. And for me, this poses a sort of an ethical and a practical question because what we've seen that we are successful with the tapering stick precisely because it's such a flexible system and because people are able to choose themselves how slow or how fast they take together with their prescriber. And if you are comparing uh, two different tapering schedules in a group of people, you get group results. But you also know that some people will be treated wrongly because within this group, they need a completely different schedule than the one that is prescribed for a scientific reason. And it's difficult for me to envisage clinical trial 
at this point in time, which is really answering questions uh, and at the same time helping people to come off these drugs. Personally, I would favor at this point in time to do much more observational research, if only to get an idea of the enormous radiation that is present uh, in the group of patients we are dealing with. We have, I think, practically very little idea about that, even. So I would like to know how, how, how would you set up a clinical trial to answer these questions? Okay. <laughs> you see, uh, randomized clinical trials uh, um, provide uh, uh, answers that apply to the average patient. Uh, but, uh, uh, and I agree with you that uh, uh, there is no solution which is good to everyone. I mean, each patient who comes to me has his or her own history of uh, uh, stress, uh, medications, uh, uh, and, and you cannot simply uh, uh, do the, the, the process, which is very common nowadays in psychiatry, make a diagnosis, and for the diagnosis, you choose uh, uh, medications. Uh, nonetheless, uh, we need to find out, uh, uh, and I also agree with you that uh, we badly need observational studies uh, to see what happens to these people, uh, uh, naturalistic studies. Uh, we need studies because these studies have been uh, suppressed for, for many years. But at the same time, when uh, we suggest uh, a method, a way of handling uh, a situation, we need uh, to compare it uh, with uh, uh, in a controlled way. Then, of course, we know that uh, that doesn't mean that everything automatically uh, applies to the patient in front of us. But uh, it's, uh, it's such an important step and, uh, and uh, uh, should be... Uh, neglected. You see, it's evidence-based medicine, uh, which is important, but, but has its own limitations. Uh, uh, that's why in our journal, we recently launched uh, medicine-based evidence, uh, which uh, takes uh, uh, by uh, uh, um, uh, leading uh, American clinicians, uh, one is uh, the chair of medicine of Mass General Hospital in Boston, uh, about uh, looking at different uh, profiles over time. So we need both randomized controlled trials and observational uh, investigations. Thank you all. That, that was very helpful. I'm going to move on now to uh, ask some questions posed by the audience. And thank you all of you for raising your questions. I'm sorry we won't get through all of them, but we'll, we'll, we have a record of them all and we'll try and make sure that any we don't get to today are, are, are built into future ones. And uh, the first one really to start off with, um, Someone's asked, can you talk a, a little about gradually decreasing antipsychotics and the associated symptoms of hearing voices and having unusual visual experiences? Do these disappear over time? Most of what I hear is about antidepressant withdrawal. And, you know, I, I think that's important because, you know, it, it, there is 
quite a focus on antidepressants because they're so commonly prescribed, but antipsychotic withdrawal is, is clearly very important too. So I wondered if anybody had any thoughts. Well, there has been uh, research, also uh, Dutch studies, a very important one, uh, was in 2013 from uh, Wondering. And in that study, they followed up uh, patients for seven years, patients who had either come off anti, uh, antipsychotics or had lowered the dose. And the surprising outcome of that study is that initially, these patients seemed to uh, fare, you could say, worse. They seemed to have more relapses. But after seven years, a number of them fared better. Not necessarily that their symptoms uh, were all gone away, but one way or another, they seemed to be capable to uh, cope better with the symptoms and a better quality of life. And this was true for the people who could stop completely but also for a group of people who fared better by just lowering the dose. And what you can say is that also there it is very important, and for antipsychotics probably more than for antidepressants, that if you are uh, lowering your dose, do it gradually, because if you get uh, what people commonly experience as relapse in uh, psychosis, is that people get into trouble the moment they stop. Relatives of people uh, with psychosis often say, no, 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 don't stop using your antipsychotics because you will immediately get problems. I guess in many cases, this will be what we call withdrawal. But apparently, at least for a part of the patient, it really seems to be possible to uh, go off this medication or to lower the dose. We have to find out who. But the only way we can do it, if we make it possible to do this gradually in a process between the provider and the patient, in which the patient has enough time to do it. And if there uh, are all these other things in place that are also in Thank you, Peter. And Joanna and Mark, from from, um, the radar perspective, you know, what, what are your thoughts? So, so I think it, it's I think coming off antipsychotics is quite complex, and there are a number of things that could be happening. Um, so, one is that uh, people experience withdrawal symptoms in the same way that people will get withdrawal symptoms if they come off benzodiazepines or opiates, and there is some evidence that occasionally those withdrawal symptoms can involve psychotic symptoms. And there is some evidence that some people who've never had psychotic symptoms before will develop them when they, um, in the period immediately after they stop um, taking antipsychotics. But there's also evidence that if you have had a mental health problem before, which involved psychotic symptoms, and that's why you were started on antipsychotics, that the process of coming off or stopping antipsychotics completely can increase the risk of having a subsequent relapse of your underlying problem. Um, so the so, so your risk of having a relapse in the period during and after which you come off the medication may be higher than it was to begin with. Um, and, and I think we definitely, I think as a clinician, I definitely do see this, that people 
do often seem to have a relapse, which is similar to the episodes that they'd had um, in the past. But it seems more than just a coincidence that it's happened immediately after they they stopped taking the medication. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and it's that sort of problem that and, and the withdrawal symptoms that hopefully can be uh, can be reduced by reducing the medication very slowly. But then there is a final possibility that is that when you withdraw the medication, the underlying problem comes back. Maybe it was suppressed by the, the medication because, you know, antipsychotics slow up people's thinking and, and blunt people's emotions and um, distance people from, from the sort of sensations. So, it, so I think another possibility is that you remove the medication and the underlying problem resurfaces. And I think all those things can be happening and it's often very difficult to know which one is happening in any particular individual at any, in any one time. Um, but, but in order to give someone the, the best chance with, um, of avoiding all those different situations, um, reducing the medication slowly and carefully seems to, seems to be the best tactic. Mark, did you want to add to that? Yes, I think that's a good, exactly. I think I'll add one thing. Um, there's a study that was published last year that showed that people um, who tapered over greater than 40 weeks from their antipsychotic, so a year or more, had about a third the chance of relapsing of people who um, tapered over less than 10 weeks. So the, the, the slower that you do it, the, the less chance there seems to be of, of relapsing. And so, exactly, to avoid all the different sorts of problems, the slower you do it, the better it seems to be to avoid a big um, change to, to your, your brain. And, and in relation to the, to the um, specific question, um, as Joanna said, that there are some cases uh, published in literature of people with no uh, psychotic disorder who experienced the symptoms that, that were mentioned. So there was a, there's a case of a, of a lawyer who was on an antipsychotic for breast milk production when she stopped it, had visual hallucinations and auditory hallucinations, heard voices and saw things that lasted for 10 months after she'd been on the drug for 10 months and, they, and she had to restart the drug again in order to stop those symptoms and have to come off it more slowly. And there's a handful of such cases. So it is possible um, that, 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 that uh, withdrawal symptoms from antipsychotics can involve psychotic symptoms, of course, as Joanna said, recently, there are lots of other explanations as well. Can I just add something? I've just seen we've got Martin Harrow in the audience. So hello, Martin. <laughs> Honoured to be uh, presenting to you. Um, and, and Martin Harrow's work, uh, as well as some other work that's coming out, suggests that people who avoid taking long-term antipsychotics can have a better outcome than people who take them continuously. Uh, and uh, and I think often it's uh, and, and and the really interesting thing about Martin's work is it shows that the benefits only start to seem to start to appear after about four years or so, and that fits with my experience. I would say that people can often have difficulties getting off antipsychotic medication, have a relapse, maybe have a relapse or two, have to go back on the medication, but. Uh, you know, a bit like if you were coming off um, 
uh, another sort of drug. Um, but some people will finally manage to get off and manage well without the medication and, and actually manage better than they were managing when they were on it. May I add something which I think is very important? That is That has to do with the uncertainty that uh, there is inevitably present, for instance, for people on antipsychotics, we know that some people can uh, stop successfully, some will struggle for a long time, and some perhaps not. And in my view, this is an argument for very careful tapering, because there are a lot of patients who want to find out. And given the insecurities that there are, if we allow patients to do this in a very careful manner, we don't have to say, this will be the result, you will come off or you will not come off. But you have an opportunity to, uh, to find out what the result will be in a safe and responsible way, rather than trying to determine at forehand, uh, you cannot taper and you can taper, because we basically cannot know. And it's patient rights uh, to have the opportunity to find out in the most uh, careful way that is possible, I would say. Thank you all. Thank you all. That was helpful. And um, we're, we're getting off for time a little bit. So um, people are asking, um, does the length of time on a medication of some type influence how difficult withdrawal will be? And is there any way of working out for someone what the future might hold based upon how long they've been on a drug? Well, I would say that you would expect that it makes a difference. But I think the real answer is that we basically don't really know uh, if this is always true and for everybody. Again, you have this big variation. And we need observational studies to find out. So, uh, sorry, if I can share one slide. Um, can't, can't, can't handle live without slides. I don't know if you can see that, but... but, but um, very, this is this is just putting together some of the studies that have been published uh, for one antidepressant, um, and this is how long someone is on the drug for, the average in these different studies, and the chance of having withdrawal symptoms. And you can see that the longer you're on it, the, the more likely you are to have withdrawal symptoms. So if you're only on the drug for a, a few months, it's, it's a rare occurrence, but once you're on it for more than three years, this is in months, then about two-thirds or three-quarters of people will have withdrawal symptoms. The same also applies, and this is from a, a smaller study, uh, just asking people online, this also applies for severity. So these are people who say that the withdrawal symptoms of experience are either moderately severe or severe. And once, so if you're only on them for a month or two, uh, again, it's a rare thing to say, once you're on it for more than three years, about two-thirds of patients will say that the symptoms were severe or moderately severe. And there's much less data on how long the symptoms last for. But it does seem that from the five studies that exist, that the longer you're on the drug for, the longer the symptoms will last for. So for people who are on the drug only for a few months, they get a few weeks of withdrawal symptoms. And once you're on it for a few years, it's more like months or longer for withdrawal symptoms. And so it might be that the longer you're on them, the more your brain gets used to the drug, the longer it takes for your brain to go back to its pre-factory settings and the longer and more severe and more likely withdrawal symptoms are. Thank you. Giovanni? 
<clears throat> if I may add uh, something on these, yes, uh, this is a general tendency that applies also to other manifestations uh, of uh, behavioral toxicity, such as uh, 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 loss of clinical effect. Uh, the longer the duration of treatment, the more likely is the antidepressant uh, uh, tendency to uh, stop uh, uh, being effective. And this brings uh, two, uh, two very important points, in my opinion. One, that unlike what is uh, uh, the general tendency today, we need to use uh, antidepressants for the shortest possible times. Of course, with antidepressants, uh, 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 it takes uh, three months to get the full effect. So short uh, cannot be less than, uh, than a few months. But uh, uh, this is exactly the contrary of what uh, is practiced, uh, longer and longer uh, treatment. And as Mark was saying, uh, then the evidence supporting this practice uh, uh, is really uh, very, very little because of the confusion between uh, uh, relapse and withdrawal. And the other <clears throat> issue which uh, we should not be uh, forgetting is the role of psychotherapy uh, in addressing symptoms that, uh, uh, that antidepressants are uh, uh, affecting. And uh, uh, I think we have a very good uh, data uh, that uh, uh, if you perform the sequential mode that if you perform psychotherapy after <coughs> pharmacotherapy, it may be, uh, it's not that important uh, continuation of uh, antidepressant drugs. So, uh, 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 but again, this is a general tendency. And then you may have uh, a patient who has been taking uh, paroxetine for four years who doesn't have withdrawal symptoms and you wonder why and you have a patient who has been taking paroxetine i'm using paroxetine as an example because it's probably the worst antidepressant in in causing these problems and you may have a patient who's been taking paroxetine for two months and you say okay i'm pretty safe in taking the medication off and you encounter problems so again, let's not forget that these are general tendencies uh, that may vary with individual histories. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. That's really helpful. And I, I guess tied to that then, you know, another viewer has asked, is there a relationship between the half-life of the drug you're taking and the, the amount of time you might need to taper off it? Um, my guess is yes. But anyway, uh, as we see for... Uh, Paroxetine and fenlafaxine, uh, it's clear that people are choosing for longer times to taper than for other drugs, but also there you have these individual differences, and it has never been investigated very uh, well in the way we can do now, because people are really able now to taper gradually using tapering strips, so we are still gathering data, so I think there's... Uh, there is uh, an association, yeah, clearly. 
So, so I've seen references in, in some uh, mainly personal accounts that those people taking shorter half-life drugs, withdrawal tends to occur more quickly and hits them harder earlier on than drugs with very long half-lives like Prozac, for example. And people sometimes recommend a Prozac bridge for those people that are on short half-life drugs. So is that your experience too and the people that you've dealt with? Are the shorter half-life drugs more of a problem? I think so, yes. But we also uh, have questionnaires from people who have filled in and they uh, note that they've tried to paper off uh, fluoxetine and had uh, suffered much from withdrawal. And they used tapering strips and it worked much better, which is very difficult to explain if you only look at the half-life and the receptor occupants. And I don't see uh, a reason not to believe those patients. So these are still open questions, I think. But in general, yes, surely, uh, the shorter the half-life, the easier you will have problems. I mean, I still, if I forget one daily dose, I have a lousy day. I don't bother about it because now I know the solution. But when it first happened to me, it made me afraid, my depression coming back, uh, and, and I wasn't warned for this. So the moment I found out, it relief, and this is absolutely reproducible, and it is within a single day. So, yes. Giovanni? Uh, yes, uh, of course, uh, uh, paroxetine and belafaxine in comparative studies uh, are uh, the drugs which are most likely to cause withdrawal reactions. Uh, however, uh, uh, these reactions take place with any type of antidepressant. I mean, it's not, uh, uh, not only with uh, short of life. And let me uh, also like to uh, hear what Mark has to say about this, but let me point uh, to a fact that the suggestion of uh, shifting to fluoxetine, which in comparative studies were shown to produce few side effects, uh, uh, is totally devoid of any scientific evidence. There is no, I mean, uh, uh, the idea, and uh, according to my model, uh, uh, actually shifting to uh, fluoxetine and to another antidepressant, uh, is also likely, at least potentially, to make things worse because you're still using an antidepressant. So you're still feeding the oppositional uh, process. Don't know, Mark, what, uh, what, what you think about it. Well, I, I've, I've got a comment on that. And that is that shifting from uh, phenophoxine to fluoxetine if you do this in the wrong way, and I've seen schedules on the internet where they say you taper down uh, from, if you use 150, you go to uh, 112 and a half, you go to 75, you go to 37 and a half, the lowest dose, then you stop. And then you start taking your first uh, fluoxetine. But given the extremely long half-life of the fluoxetine, it takes a few weeks before you have a reasonable steady state. And in this period of time, you will suffer terrible withdrawal from the phenlafaxine. So even without the oppositional model of tolerance, 
you get immediate withdrawal symptoms if you don't do the shift properly. And I think this is what happens in uh, clinical practice probably quite often. So I think, so, I think withdrawal is reported from all antidepressants, people on fluoxetine as well as people on peroxetine. So I think a long half-life doesn't protect you. It does seem that it's more common in a shorter half-life drugs like peroxetine, benlafaxine, and geloxetine. But it's true that they, those drugs also affect more receptors, so that's maybe part of the reason why they cause worse withdrawal. It does make some sense. If you think about your brain is used to a drug and it takes time for it to get back to normal, and having a drug that leaves your system more slowly would seem to reduce withdrawal rather than one that kind of comes out very quickly and you've got more time uh, delayed for the brain to go back uh, to normal. Um, I, I, so the textbooks still do recommend a fluoxetine switch. Um, and I think... If I was at gunpoint to choose an antidepressant for somebody, I would choose fluoxetine because it's easier to come off, I think, than other, than other drugs. Although it can be a bit confusing because it has a half-life of about two weeks. You can experience withdrawal symptoms that are three or four months down the track, and it can be very confusing to connect that to coming off the drug. So it can be a confusing drug to come off, although it should uh, make things more smooth. And so sometimes people can halve that drug every couple of months. When it comes to switching patients, I never switch patients. Um, and, and I'll uh, tell you that the, the, the textbook in, our, in the UK that guides drug use is the Maudsley Guidelines. The, the, the author of that tried the switch and was so unwell, he had to go back. So I, don't, I, I think that switching causes a huge amount of trouble for people because you've got withdrawal from the one drug, you've got new side effects from the, the next drug. I think it is complicated. Um, so if, if, if possible, I, I, I try to avoid that and, and just reduce the drug the person's already on. Um, but, but then I've heard people say that they switch without problems. Maybe that makes it easier, but I, I think it's a bit risky in, in, my, in my experience. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. Um, I'm conscious that we're coming up for time. Um, there, there were a few questions bundled around tapering strips, but I'm sure Petey won't mind if, if, if I tell people go to taperingstrips.com. Oh, it's taperingstrip.com, isn't it, on, on the web, then um, the questions should be answered there. Well, there, also, there are also a number of other languages uh, in which the but you have to search like tapering strategy for Germany, uh, FR for France. So the information can be found in more languages than only in English. And yeah, so um, thank you for your questions. I'm sorry we didn't get to too many of them, but we will keep them for future reference for, for future discussions. Um, in the final minute or two, I, firstly, thank you all for attending this. You know, we're delighted to have you with us and thank you for spending the last hour and a half with us to talk about these issues. I, I wish we had more time, but, you know, we, we've packed in quite a lot, I think. Uh, thank you so much to the panel for uh, making time for this important discussion. And, you know, it's, it's, it's been great to see you and, and hear you talk about these developments and where we need to do more work and where we need to understand more. And thank you to Shira and Lucy for managing things behind the scenes. Um, 
we will be arranging another upcoming discussion in this series. The next one, we're going to be focusing on protracted withdrawal experiences. So the experiences of people that have gone on to have very, very long-term problems after uh, even gradual tapers. So keep an eye on maddenamerica.com and we'll be announcing details for that one within the next week or two. Uh, there will be a recording of this and we will uh, email you all a link to that when it's up on Madden America's YouTube channel. Um, but thank you to all of you for attending. And uh, if any of the panel had any last words, uh, over to you. I, I just wanted to say in relation to the last point that I think it's really important people appreciate that drugs like antidepressants are not the same. But dr drugs like benzodiazepines are relatively chemically similar uh, and have similar effects, but different half-lives. But, you know, antidepressant drugs, even things that are labelled as SSRIs, are different from each other. And that's why I think the switching is difficult. And antipsychotics are even more varied. You know, they're, they're drugs with all sorts of different actions. So um, so switching is, is definitely complicated. Well, and if you, if you want to switch... You should try to uh, do it in such a way that at least your receptor occupancy, uh, because most uh, of the switches are done between uh, uh, molecules which uh, work on the same receptor, that you try to keep the receptor occupancy high enough to not get people into trouble. And for that purpose, it is possible to use switch strips and we will be validating that if people switch, but I tend to agree with Mark, why would you if you, well, that's a matter of uh, debate. But indeed, switching is difficult. Okay, I'm going to have to call time to it there because we're just over time. Thank you all so much. Uh, it's been a great discussion and great to see you all. And uh, we look forward to the next one. Thank you. So thank you for listening today and a reminder that our next discussion will be held on May the 14th, 2021, and we'd be delighted if you could join us. So to register, visit eventbrite.com, that's E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E.com, and search for Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal. So until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.